Okay, well, I will just start by introducing our Simple Living seminars going so wonderfully. That's weird, because I haven't done that the whole time. Yeah. And we're just so thrilled to see everyone here, especially the children. We love children, just so you know. Anyone that's here, we love children. They make us smile. Amen. And you know, in the Bible, in Proverbs 17.22, it says, A merry heart worketh good like a medicine. And we can learn that from children, can't we? Okay, so um, before we start, let's have a prayer together. Dear Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for this amazing day, for the sunshine, for the food that we've eaten, that we're now nourished. Lord, we pray now that we can be mentally nourished with some information here that it would be blessed by you, that you would give Deidre all the words to say that would be a glory and honor to you, and we just thank you so much. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, So just a brief introduction of myself. My name is Deidre, and my husband Matt and I have served for the last two years at Black Hills Health and Education Center. He's been running the farm out there. Um, We moved this September to Utah to um, Daystar Academy, and he's helping run the farm at Castle Valley Farms there now. Um, we've been involved in agriculture for several years and, um, you know, he gets to do a lot of the work side of it while I get to work a lot too, but, um, I spend a lot of time in the kitchen and I spend a lot of time helping put up the stuff that he grows and doing all the other farming stuff too, but we're going to talk a little bit about that today. And, um, we have three beautiful kids that are a huge blessing to me. Josiah, Hadassah, and our little Hannah is 10 months, and she's taking a nap. Praise the Lord. So (laughs) we're just going to talk a little bit about preserving the harvest and carrying our produce into the rest of the year when we're not growing actively on the farm. So just a couple housekeeping things before I actually get started. Like cell phones really distract me, and if someone's cell phone rings, then... um, And if you guys can turn your cell phones off too, I'd appreciate it. And then I'll have time for questions at the end. So if you guys want to hold your questions for the end, that would be great too. Um, I tend to be kind of a fast talker. So if I get, you know, too hurried, you guys can just kind of let me know I'm going a little fast and I'll slow down. Because some people say I tend to talk fast and sound like I'm out of breath. So I'll try not to do that. All right. So why are we going to talk about food preservation? Well... Like I said, we want to extend our food into the time where we're, you know, where we're not actively producing. Uh, preserving helps you to make less of a consumer impact because you're not you know, buying all of the packaged goods from the stores. You're reusing your canning jars and things like that. Um, and, of course, there's a monetary value there. You know, I think that we are called to be good stewards. We're called to be good stewards of our finances, of our time. And I think that includes um, our money, you know, just like Jennifer and Pam talked about this morning about simplifying and about, you know, minimizing our grocery bill. This is a big part of that, especially, you know, when we're working on tight budgets, which farmers usually tend to be. So um, food preservation takes a lot of work and it takes a lot of work at the time of year where it's really crazy when you're growing your own food. But I think it's well worth it. And I think that we really gain a blessing from it. And we know what we're eating. That's a huge thing because a lot of people don't know what they're eating. So food preservation is definitely important to me, and I think it should be important to all of us. 
So when you select produce to preserve, um, you always want to preserve produce that is in peak season. Um, it's going to taste better, it's going to look better, and it's going to store better. So um, you always want to choose produce that's fresh. Um, and you, you don't want it to be, have any type of spoilage on it, any moldy spots or rotten spots or anything like that. And obviously it's just going to preserve better if, if you stick to those standards. So preservation takes place in many different methods. Um, this is probably not all inclusive, but those include freezing, dehydration, canning, fermentation and pickling, and curing and smoking. So those last two bullet points we're not going to talk about today for several different reasons, but we are going to talk about freezing, dehydration, and canning. Let's go ahead and jump into freezing. Uh, freezing is suitable for most fruits and vegetables, things like sauces and soups. You can freeze a lot of things. It's really versatile. It's quick. It's easy to do. Um, you know, you pretty much just throw it in. Um, their quality can be maintained for 12 to 18 months with proper storage. And the bad thing about freezing is that, you know, you have a limited capacity because your freezer is only so big or you, or you have to get another freezer or another freezer. And really, you're using a lot of energy to keep those freezers running. And if at any time the power goes out, you have to think about what you're going to do with that food or it's all just going to go bad and your time is wasted. So it may be easy, but then it's also kind of, it can be a chore. Um, so when you freeze produce, the first thing you want to do, of course, is wash it. Um, you want to process it however you're going to, so remove stems, chop it, um, make it into usable pieces. A lot of times when you freeze stuff, you want it to be smaller pieces so you can take out just a portion at a time. Um, it may require blanching or, um, you know, just heating it a little bit if necessary. And then you want to determine what type of portion sizes you're going to be using because it's nice to be able to just take out one little bit at a, at a time rather than opening a larger container and taking out little bits. And then um, you want to place them in freezer containers. So I want to talk a little bit about blanching vegetables because most um, vegetables have to be blanched before you can freeze them. Blanching helps to make them um, maintain or retain their color, their taste, their texture, those type of things um, when they're preserved in any way because it, in, excuse me, it inhibits the enzyme action that naturally occurs that breaks down the food. Um, it also makes the vegetables softer so that you can pack them tighter. So like if you're, you know, processing greens or something, um, they cook down a lot. So if you blanch them first, you can store more at a time. Same with anything, too, even carrots. If you cook them down a little bit, they're going to pack tighter. And then blanching vegetables also helps to just clean them a little more. So the easiest way to blanch vegetables is to use a blanching basket that's, you know, specifically for that. You can also just use a pot. We use our, um, like our pasta insert for our kettle. And so as a general rule, you want to use about a gallon of water per pound of vegetable. So when you put your vegetables into the boiling water, you want it to return to a boil within a minute. And so when you keep the ratio about a gallon to a pound, then that, you know, it keeps the water from getting too low where it's not coming back up to a boil. And so you boil it and you blanch it for the set amount of time. And then when you take it out, you want to put it in a cool water bath or an ice water bath to stop the cooking process because you don't want to cook the, the vegetables. And then you want to drain the vegetables thoroughly. 
So this is something that I pulled off the internet. It would be a good resource for you to find. It's pretty easy to find something like this, but all it is is a chart that it lists different vegetables and then the middle column says whether you need to blanch it and then the um, right column says how long it should be blanched before freezing. And if it's not recommended for freezing, like the Jerusalem artichoke, it'll just say NA, so it doesn't apply. So something like that is a really good um, tool to have in your bucket. A uh, little bit about flash freezing. Flash freezing is just a way to freeze produce where it doesn't clump all together, okay? So if you have berries or you have small pieces of vegetables, those types of things that you're going to want to take out in little batches, then you can flash freeze them. And basically all that is is you wash your food and um, you allow it to drain very well and then you put it on a flat surface like a cookie sheet or something and you put it in the freezer and let it freeze like that. And when it's spread out so thinly, it freezes quickly and then you can take it off in individual pieces and put them in your containers that way. So there's obviously a lot of different um, options for freezing containers. Ziploc bags work really well and they're cheap. Some people don't like to use plastic though, so that poses a problem. Um, for people who don't like to use the plastic Ziploc bags or vacuum sealed bags, um, the down at the bottom here you see the Food Saver brand. It makes they make a little thing that goes over the top of a mason jar, and you can remove the air with one of those, and they work really good. Um, and you can get little handheld vacuum sealers like the one the top picture. So you can just use little um, handheld vacuum sealers to remove air from containers so that your food stores longer that way and so you don't have to buy like a big vacuum sealer that can be hundreds of dollars. Some tips for when you're freezing, just to kind of recap, you want to make sure the produce is well drained before you freeze it because that excess water can kind of help it clump together, help it get freezer burnt. Um, you want to remove as much air as possible from the containers before you put them in the freezer and make sure there's an airtight seal on the container that you're choosing so that the moisture can't be drawn out. Um, don't forget to label and date everything. And then um, the faster you can process your things and then get it totally frozen, the better. You're going to retain more nutrients that way. And so as a rule of thumb, two to three um, pounds of produce per square foot of freezer space. If you get any higher in that ratio, it kind of heats your freezer up too fast that it can't freeze the produce quickly enough. So that's a pretty good guideline to go by. Okay, so we're gonna move on to dehydration. So dehydration, when you wanna dehydrate produce, first of all, you have to have a dehydrator, right? So dehydrators come in many shapes and sizes and price tags, so um, it's not a one shoe fits all. So you really have to decide what you're looking for in a dehydrator. If you eat raw foods, you're going to look for something that has a temperature control, so the temperature is not getting too high for you. Um, if you want, um, maybe it's the materials, maybe you want something that doesn't have any plastic in it, you want something that's stainless steel, those models are available. Um, or maybe you want to pack as much in there as possible, then you're going to look you know, for something with a greater capacity, and then price is always a factor too. So. Um, like the dehydrator on the bottom here is probably about $35, whereas the one above it is a couple hundred dollars, and you can get models that are much more than that. So there's a very big price range, um, and like with any kitchen gadget, um, I encourage people to get something and see if you're actually going to use it before you invest in something bigger and nicer. So um, 
Approximate drying temperatures, most things can be dried around 135 degrees. Um, herbs a little bit less, but um, this is air temperature too, so there's some debate on air temperature versus food temperature for live foods, and I'm not going to get into all of that, but that's a kind of a general guideline. So when we dehydrate fruits, you want to, before you even start, determine what you're going to use it for, because that's going to... Um, determine how you're going to prepare that food, how you're going to slice it or chop it or whatever. Um, but most importantly, you want to keep the sizes or the pieces uniform so they all dry evenly. Um, if you want to, you can pre-soak fruits like one-to-one -one lemon juice to water, and that will help them hold their color, retain their color better, but you don't have to do that. That's um, totally aesthetic. Or you can use some other type of ascorbic acid or something, like some people use the fresh fruit preservation stuff, but... Lemon and water works just fine. Um, and then when you dry fruit, once you remove it from the dehydrator, it's good to pack it loosely together with all of the pieces and it, it um, conditions it or lets it cure. And so the moisture that's in there will kind of even out. And so then once that week has gone by, you can package them individually. That's the recommendation. So dehydrating vegetables, they come out a little differently, and most vegetables um, require blanching or cooking beforehand so that they don't get too rock hard, like okra maybe. Or <laughs> um, onions and mushrooms and tomatoes are an exception, but um, vegetables do become very brittle and hard. So vegetables are really good for chips or for um, to use in recipes to reconstitute, you know, to use in soups and things like that. So again, you want to wash and um, dehydrate them. And then whenever you um, are going through your dehydrating process, sometimes you'll want to rotate the trays around. So you'll notice that on the top where the um, air is the hottest, they'll get drier there first. And so if you rotate them, it helps them to finish the dehydration process sooner. So when is it done is always a big question. And that's something that we all kind of have to learn for ourselves because it really depends. Um, Drying times depend on, you know, how you've prepared it, how thick or thin you've sliced things, um, the temperature that you're drying at, how much airflow is around the material that you have on the racks. And so there's no hard and fast, like you put in apples and they dry in five hours or anything like that. So it's something that's kind of touch and go, and the Internet's a great resource, so if you are drying apple chips or something, you can get on there and you can look and see what other people have done and what's worked for them. But it really is a learning process, and um, I would say err on the side of caution and overdry things rather than underdry things. Because there again, if you if you don't dry it enough, then it's going to spoil, and then you've just wasted a lot of time doing it. So, um, some tips for dehydrating: again, keep the pieces uniform size, store them in single-use quantities so that you're not opening a container to take stuff out repeatedly. Especially if you live somewhere where it's very humid, you're going to let that moisture in. And, um, you know, the food will absorb that. Um, you want to package them tight and remove as much air as possible, just like when we're freezing, because the air can help um, spoil or it can hold moisture. And then store them in a dark and cool and dry location, and they'll store best there. So we're going to move on to canning. Um, canning is suitable for a lot of things. You can can um, fruits, jams, jellies, sauces, soups. I'm sure you guys know, you know, what things you can can. Um, canning, the jars can be stored very easily. 
um, and they have a shelf life of, of approximately a year or maybe a little bit longer. Canning is definitely more labor intensive than other um, food preservation methods, but I feel like it's also much more rewarding. Um, it's nice to be able to gift people canned items and to be able to use them and to have a pantry stocked full because they're things that we use quite often. You know, we use applesauce a lot or we use our canned tomatoes a lot, things like that. And so you can really save a lot of money that way. Whereas sometimes when you have dehydrated foods, it's really kind of hard to figure out how to use them. <laughs> so, um, so the process of canning, what it does is it removes oxygen. So when you heat those jars in a canning kettle, um, the air expands and it pushes the extra air out of the cans. And then when it cools, it creates a vacuum seal and holds the lid on tight. So when you're heating it, it also prevents the growth of um, bacteria and yeast and molds. It kills them and it denatures in those enzymes that um, cause food to spoil naturally. And then by having it in a sealed container, it helps to re retain the moisture of the food in the jar. So for canning, obviously you need some pretty specific equipment. You're going to need canning jars and lids and rings. And I wish I could have brought stuff, but <laughs> we were coming too far. Um, you're going to need some type of canner to process in, so that can be a water bath canner or a pressure canner, depending on what you're doing, and then a canning rack to go inside of it. And then utensils like funnels and a magnet for the lids, which isn't totally necessary, um, tongs for picking up the jars and those type of things. So um, you don't need a lot, but you do need the necessities. And then this is one thing that I like to have in my canning um, tool chest. It's basically all it is is a quick reference chart that has times on it for um, how long to process certain things. So this one is vegetables in a pressure canner and it just lists them and um, tells you how long they need to be processed and at what pressure in the pressure canner. So um, it's very easy to find reference charts like this anywhere um, online or your local ag extension. Um, so that's something that's really good to have in your tool chest as well. So factors to think about when you're canning, you want to think about the acidity of um, whatever you're canning. So fruits and tomatoes and jams and things like that tend to be acidic enough that they don't have to be pressure canned. Um, you can add acid to things like using lemon juice or type, those type of things. Um, they recommend adding a little bit of lemon juice to tomatoes because their acidity does vary. Um, if you're processing something that is low acidic, um, that isn't very acidic, like vegetables, you will have to use a pressure canner. And so basically what the pressure canner does is it creates enough pressure in there that it can get hotter. And since there's, it doesn't have the acid content to fight against, to help against the um, bacteria and those type of things, it uses the higher temperatures instead. And so that's why the pressure canning. You also want to think about elevation because that can um, be a factor in how long you process things. And then you want to think about how much you're going to use. Um, you don't want to process 300 cans of tomatoes if it's just you and your husband and you're not going to eat them all within that year time frame. It's better to save your energy and um, process just what you're going to use and need. So the first thing you want to do is you want to prepare your produce. Um, and so you're just going to prepare it however you want. Um, jams, jellies, sauces, soups, purees, all of those types of things. 
And so that can be done in various ways. <laughs> you can go into that because you can can a lot of things. Um, the next step in the process is to sterilize the jars. Now, a lot of people I know don't even go through this process um, with the canner anymore. They use um, their dishwasher because it has that nice, fancy sterilize button that they can push, and it keeps them hot and sterilizes them. But the old-fashioned method <laughs> is to, um, the first thing you always want to do with your jars is check that rim on top of the jar and make sure that there's not any chips in it or defects because if there is then it's going to keep it from getting a tight seal and you've just wasted your time. So the first thing you always want to do is check the top of the jar. And then you want to wash them in hot soapy water and rinse them well because um, any residue of the dish soap can cause a really funny taste. So you want to make sure they're rinsed well after they're washed. And then you want to put the empty jars right side up in your canner. In your canner and bring it to a boil. You want to put it in there with cool water or warm water and bring it to a boil. And once it boils, you want to simmer the jars for about 10 minutes. And they say, you know, if you're 1,000 feet above sea level, for every 1,000 feet, you want to add one minute. And then you just want to keep those hot until you're ready to pack them with your produce. So when you pack them with produce, you want to fill the jars leaving headspace. And the headspace is um, that little area between the top of the contents and then the bottom of the lid. And so um, recommendations for different head spaces are a quarter inch to one and a quarter inches depending on what you're processing and how you're processing it. Those vegetables, again, because they're at higher pressures and things expand a little more, um, they need a higher head space. Um, and then hot pack versus cold pack. Sometimes you'll want to cold pack things. You'll just want to peel, say, peel your produce and put it in their hole or chop it and put it in there that way when it's not heated. And so you just put it in your sterile jars that way. Other times you'll want to use a hot pack method, and that's really good for if you are going to um, pressure can things um, for vegetables to kind of help pre-soften them so you can put more in the jar, um, like we were talking about greens and things. And it helps kind of preheat everything so it comes to temperature faster. So you have to kind of decide which way, how you want to put it in the jar. And then once you get your um, produce in the jar, say pears or apples or whatever you're putting in there, then you want to fill the voids in there with water or sometimes people use syrup that they've made, just um, sugar and water type of thing. And you want to fill it up to that headspace line. And then you want to run like a knife or something around in there to just release all the air bubbles and bring them to the top so you don't have a lot of extra air and space in there because if you do, then the water level is going to come down when everything settles and then you'll have food above the water level and it'll dry out. So once you get them filled, you want to put the lids on. You don't want to use old dented or damaged lids because that can affect your seal. You want to wipe the rim of the jar clean so that you don't have any food residue there that's going to keep you from getting a good seal as well. And then um, you want to put the lids on the jars. And I would just suggest that you read the packaging for the instructions because some of the instructions have changed for the canning lids. Um, the manufacturer of the, the Kerr and Ball lids, um, it's the largest manufacturer of canning lids in the U.S., just changed their recommendations. And they didn't really tell anyone, but they say you don't have to pre-boil them or pre-simmer them now. And they actually recommended against it because they say that the gasket, the rubberish part on there, um, can get too soft and that it won't make a good seal. But I, 
I think that if you just bring it to a simmer, it's okay, but if you, if you heat it above that, then um, they say it's too soft. Anyway, so they say not to preheat the lids. Well, we always thought we preheated the lids to sterilize them, um, but apparently we, you don't have to. So I would just say read the manufacturer's um, directions on the lids and, and follow those directions. So anyway, you put the flat lid on there, and then you want to finger tighten the rings. Over tightening the rings, um, it doesn't allow for the air to escape, so you won't get a very good vacuum seal. So you don't want to over tighten lids, but you also don't want to under tighten them because then they the lid won't seat down. So just, you know, with your fingers and not wrench it on there. <laughs> so, all right, let's see. So the water bath process for processing the canning jars. Um, so this can be used for jams and jellies, fruits, tomatoes, and all of those acidic things that we were talking about. So the water bath method, you basically take the jars that you've filled and you put them in the canning rack of the kettle. And you want to fill the kettle then with enough water to at least have an inch over the lids of water, one to two inches. And um, you can put warm or hot water in there, um, 140 to 108 degrees, depending on if it's um, cold or hot pack. But you don't want to put boiling water on top of the cold jars because you can cause them to break that way. So um, you, put the, you put the water onto the jars, and then you turn your burner onto high and bring it to a vigorous boil. Um, and then once it's boiling, you set your timer to the um, time that you want to can at, or how long is required to process that specific um, produce. And then um, once your timer, oh, so once you get your timer set, if you want to turn it down, turn your kettle down a little bit, you can, but you want, don't want to turn it down too far that you... Um, you want your boil to be maintained for that whole timer. Otherwise, if you lose your boil, you have to start over and reset the timer again. Um, so when the processing time is complete, you want to turn off the heat and take the lid off. So you want to process with the lid on. And then when it's complete, you can take the lid off and turn it off the heat. And you want to let them sit for a few minutes before you take them out and put them onto the counter. Um, when you put them out to cool, it's good to have a little bit of space, about an inch in between the jars so the air can circulate around them and they can actually cool down. And you want to let them cool on the counter for about 12 to 24 hours, but pretty quickly you'll hear, hear the lids on them start popping and sealing. And um, so within several hours you should know if all of your cans are going to seal or not because the lids will pop down and it'll have a concave lid. If they're not sealed, then you'll have to reprocess them again. And sometimes, you know, there's a defect in it. You have to figure out why it didn't seal. And then if you are going to reprocess them in the water bath again, it's good to do that within 24 hours. Or you could just eat it. So, if you're going to be processing in a pressure canner, um, there's been a lot of different changes to pressure canners um, over the last couple of decades. And they really vary... Um, their gauges on them and their weights and different things like that. There's so many different ones available out there. So I'm not going to go into specifics. You'll have to um, follow the directions on your pressure canner. But, um, you know, like I said, it's for low acidic foods um, to achieve those higher temperatures. And then you're, you set your timer for your processing time once your pressure is achieved. And then you have to wait for it to cool before you open it. So once you have all of your lovely canned goods, um, you can just store them on a shelf 
It's best once the seal, if it has a nice tight seal, you can take the ring off and then just wipe down the tops and the sides of the jars and clean them off because they can get food residue on them when they're processing. So it's nice to clean them and then store them in a cool place um, where they don't get direct sunlight and you want to use them within that one year time. And make sure that every year when you use your produce, you're rotating so you're using the oldest stuff first. And then if there's any, any if there's ever any question of the safety of um, the food in the jars, you definitely, um, you don't want to chance it, so you don't ever want to test anything. So um, a concern would be if you don't have a nice tight seal on there, if the lid comes off, um, or if there's, you know, if you can visually see food that's spoiled in there, you just want to discard those things. Um, so if there's air bubbles in there, like if it fizzes, that's a bad sign, those type of things. So that if there's any question of whether um, it's not good, then don't even chance it. So tips about canning. Um, you always want to check the jars and the lids for defects, like I said. You want to make sure always, always to do that because you don't want to be wasting your time. And keep those reference charts on hand. That way you're not having to go every time you do canning and research it. Um, one of my biggest tips would be if, um, if you're canning or you want to learn how to can would be to find a mentor or find a friend to do it with. It's a lot more fun if you have someone to can with. Um, and you can learn a lot from um, people who have done it before. So when, when I started canning, I was canning with my mother-in-law and she loves to help us every year, or she did when we lived near her. Um, we had a couple of ladies in our church that uh, we would call and say, how do we do this, or how do we do that, or we had questions. And so it's nice to know people like that because it's really becoming a lost art, preserving our own food, and especially canning. Um, so, yeah, learn from each other and just keep learning, you know. It's really exciting when you do something new and can something new um, that you've never done before. And like I said, it's really rewarding being able to share that with others. So I talked about being a really fast talker, and so I got done in a half an hour flat. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.